1: Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to a very special episode. Happy birthday, everyone, and thanks so much for stopping by. Today, seven years ago, a very nervous and clueless 20 year old first year college student released his first episode examining the Franco Prussian War. Since then, thankfully, you've forgiven me for that audio atrocity, and you've stuck with me ever since. For those that have been here since the beginning, and I know that there are a good few of you, this must be a very special day indeed. For those that have just joined maybe a few months or a few weeks ago, count your blessings. In all seriousness though, thank you all so much for making the last seven years of podcasting so enjoyable and so rewarding. I never imagined that when I first started spitting into my blue snowball all those years ago that I would have all of this around me seven years on. Mercifully for you, we're not going to do what we did for our fifth birthday. There will be no seven weeks to run wild. Instead, we've got a birthday Q&A to occupy us today. Sandwiched, as this episode is, between episodes of the Versailles Anniversary Project, of the Delegation Game, and of 1956. Sorry about that. Our schedule's never been so packed, but that doesn't mean that we don't have time to make this episode a very special one indeed. And I think I should start off by dropping this huge news I've been hyping up for so darn long. I should clarify that if you've been thinking about what this news could possibly be, if you're really tying yourself in knots thinking about it, you may have overthought it a little bit. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be as disappointing as Season 8 of Game of Thrones, too soon, but I am saying that this announcement won't fundamentally change your universe. All this hype and build up, Zach. Just get on with it already, okay, fair enough. But before I do that, I'll explain how this is gonna go. This news contains several moving parts, so I'll drop the news and then proceed to explain it. I'm saying this because I don't want you to hear the news and then run away only to realize you've loads of questions. Stick around and I shall be able to answer them all. Okay then, here it goes. I'm just going to say it. This, history friends, is your official notice. In September 2019, I'll be starting a PhD in history in Trinity College Dublin. What do you think? Pretty exciting, eh? Ever since I first unveiled my plan in 2016 to go to Cambridge, I've had people asking me whether I was going or what the story was, and even some asking me if I was enjoying my studies there since they assumed I was attending. So I'm sure you have lots of questions. Namely, why am I going to Trinity College Dublin and not Cambridge? Well, let me start off by saying that Trinity College Dublin is Ireland's most reputable university, certainly it's most famous, and unquestionably it's one steeped in an awful lot of history. It was actually founded by Queen Elizabeth I in the late 1500s, in a bid to make the native Irish Protestant through English influence, and Trinity, or Trinners as it's also known, has always had something of a chip on its shoulder ever since now I can say that because I did my previous studies of a Bachelor of Arts and Masters in University College Dublin, which is about 30 minutes away from Trinity, outside of Dublin City Centre, and UCD and Trinity often position themselves as their major competitors, or at least their students do. As someone who will have studied in both of Ireland's foremost universities, you could say that I have the best of both worlds, but the reason why Trinity recommended itself to me is more multi-layered than that. The short answer is... Trinity suits me down to the ground. Now, I'm about to drop a little bit of a story on you all, so if you weren't aware of how we got to this point, then this might be useful for you. If you've heard this story before, you could fast forward a bit, but if you're wanting to hear it again, or maybe you're just here because you want to hear some good news, then just keep on listening. So Here we go. For so long, I believed that I wouldn't be a proper academic or a proper historian if I didn't go to Cambridge. Now, if you are familiar with this story, I should enlighten you onto some facts. When I was finishing up my master's in UCD in summer 2015, I had several long and very interesting conversations with some academics in the history department. Several of these fellows said I should apply to both Cambridge and Oxford, To me, though, the idea that someone like Zach could apply to these places and get in was impossible. But once I learned that my dissertation had won the prize for being the best in the year, and once I learned that I wouldn't get any money for that prize, not bitter at all, and that prize is purely used to leverage a better application for, yeah, another college you want to apply to, I felt it couldn't hurt to try. At the same time, I had met with some folks in the BBC thanks to my family connections. And that was when I truly began to see this podcast as something other than a hobby. No, I wasn't the crazy history podcast host you know and love quite yet, but I was certainly getting there. So anyway, I applied to both Cambridge and Oxford in late 2015 because I figured, why not, I'll just go for both. And within a few weeks, in early 2016, I received some incredible news that both universities had offered me a place to begin a PhD there. I was absolutely bowled over. I really could not believe it. And if you've been following my story since then or before then, you'll remember that I shared news of getting into Cambridge on our Facebook and on my own Facebook profile, only to share news of getting into Oxford a few weeks later. And I was really, really surprised, I have to say it. It's not like I'm one of those people who would say, you know, you talk to them before the exam and they say, Oh, I don't think I'm going to do very well. I'm going to get like a C or I'm going to fail and then turns out they get an A. I'm actually one of those people who, when they say they're going to do badly, they are genuinely going to do badly. So in this case, not really expecting all that much, but obviously hoping for the best, when I found out that Cambridge and Oxford had both said yes, I really was amazed. Of course, being amazed and being accepted is one thing, but then it dawned on me that I would actually have to pay for this thing. You see, if you weren't aware, in Ireland we have a system where there's no actual tuition fees for undergraduate courses, There's instead this student contribution charge, which has been creeping up each year, and the joke is that, well, it's not really a joke, it's quite serious and quite awful, but essentially, this contribution charge now costs as much, virtually, as those fees. But technically, you're still free to go to university, so long as you have about five grand lying around. Now, I know, to those of you from the United States and elsewhere who have to pay in the tens of thousands for just a semester, that doesn't sound like all that much, but... Different countries, different societies, different expectations, etc, etc. The expenses which do exist for graduate programmes in the arts in Ireland do not run into the hundreds of thousands, and they're normally below the ten grand mark for the year. I was able to scrape together the money for the masters in UCD, in other words, but uprooting myself, and then my wife, to go to Cambridge or Oxford in England, and then, from summer 2016 onwards, Realising that Brexit threw an additional spanner in the mix, this meant I would be utterly reliant on grants or scholarships, and having waited anxiously for most of the year for news, I learned in July 2016 that I hadn't got the funding, and that therefore I wouldn't be able to attend what I believed was my dream course. Thankfully, I got a job as a researcher for a charity called The Leprosy Mission, a job which I got mostly, by the way, because of the demonstrated ability I had to research and work really hard in this podcast. Once that dried up in March 2018, though, I was able to make use of the fact that this podcast was bringing in the equivalent of a part-time income. I worked tirelessly on When Diplomacy Fails over the summer, and then in early September last year... I got a strange email from a guy who I'd once done a guest lecture for in the Technological University of Dublin. Like something out of a dream. He wanted to know if I was up for doing a spot of guest lecturing, but this time sticking around and being an actual lecturer in Irish politics. So I said, heck yes. I went in for the interview, and even with no teaching experience, I managed to get the job. I have to emphasise now, and this is a common theme here, I only got this job because of the podcast. None of this would have happened otherwise. Absolutely none of it. So I went in every Friday to do my lecturing, still motoring away at the podcast and preparing for the main event of all projects, the anniversary project. I was kept quite busy, and then late last year I was offered more hours, this time with modules in the European Union. From January 2019 then, my hours went from two a week to seven a week, Which doesn't sound like much, but between the commuting, the researching, the actual lecturing, and, oh yeah, the fact that I've never actually done this before, I was quite busy. It sure didn't help that I decided it would be a fab idea to try out something new called the delegation game. Between the delegation game, the lecturing, the researching, the lecturing, did I mention the lecturing? And settling into the job, and of course the Versailles anniversary project, which didn't exactly become less important, I was busier and more exhausted and more stressed than I've ever been before in my life. But it wasn't so bad, because I knew the term ended for the Technological University of Dublin in the first week of May. Around the same time as I'd been asked to do more hours in TUD, I had been plugging away at my future plans. You see, I really wanted to pursue the Cambridge idea late last year. I wanted to do this PhD because I believed, if I didn't, I'd always regret it. So about November or October, I applied again. But this time I was advised to apply for a master's first, because by applying and by getting a master's in Cambridge, I could then progress into the PhD programme, which is what a lot of students do there, and I could make new contacts along the way, and hopefully in this process, qualify for that precious funding. And yet, even as I did apply for it in October 2018, I started to feel like a great deal of the shine had come off the whole idea. First and foremost, I didn't want to leave Ireland. I really didn't want to. I love living in Ireland, I love our apartment, I didn't want to leave my family and uproot our life and go somewhere else. At one point, Anna and I were discussing it in our favourite pub, which is to say, the pub we live next door to, and we were having one of those deep, meaningful conversations about our futures, and two things dawned on me. First of all, I didn't really want to go to Cambridge anymore. And second, I really wanted to do a PhD, so why didn't I just do it in Trinity? I would still send the Cambridge application in, but I felt within my rights to say that, after all I'd done, I was a published author, I was a master's graduate, I was a history podcaster, and a complete and utter history nerd on top of all that, that if Cambridge wasn't going to fight for me, then I wasn't going to fight for them. I didn't want to have to start a masters all over again. I wanted to get right into the PhD program. Other stuff tarnished the Cambridge dream still further. Brexit got increasingly messy in the news, and increasingly I had to explain it to my students, which was a great joy to behold, This also meant that fees were somewhat up in the air for EU students like me. On top of all of this, guys, and not to get too real on you all, but we also learned around this time that my dad had cancer, and this was a wake-up call for all of us, but it also meant that I triply didn't want to leave home, of course. When I got the letter from Cambridge in January this year, saying that actually I didn't get in, I was at first suffering from a bruised ego, But then I got over myself and I was able to look at this as the door closing on a dream which I no longer really held dear anymore. As my dad worked on getting better, which don't worry, he's going to be fine and is undergoing chemo at the moment, I worked on finalising my application for Trinity for a PhD. No, not a master's and then a PhD, Mr. Cambridge, but a straight up, no questions asked, sink my teeth into it straight away, PhD, a four year full time programme. At the beginning of April, I finally got word to come in for an interview, and despite the fact that my thesis is awkward as hell to assign someone to as a supervisor, Trinity wanted to have me, they were impressed with me, and they seemed really keen to hand me those three letters which I've been chasing for what feels like forever. So that's the journey of Zach, from Cambridge hopeful to prospective Trinity student, and it all begins this September, when I begin my four-year degree as a PhD student. My thesis will hone in once more on national honour in British foreign policy, with a focus on the late Victorian era. Interestingly enough, thanks to the work done with Britain Goes to War, that Russo-Turkish War of 1877 will serve as my quintessential starting point. So if you're wondering, as I'm sure many of you have been, what the point of Britain Goes to War even was, now it has a purpose after all. The provisional plan is to work my way through British foreign policy from that point onwards, probably up to the Russo-Japanese War, maybe to the First World War if we have time. Who knows? My supervisor did say to keep my options relatively flexible in terms of timeline, but he was certainly impressed with how much I knew. Let's just say that you know the interview is going well with your prospective supervisor when you spend half an hour talking about your programme and about an hour nattering about history, just nerding out in general with someone who's equally as passionate as I am I felt right at home with these people and in this university and I feel so encouraged that I'm making the right choice by going to Trinity it means so much that I can stay in Ireland with my family my friends and my life and I honestly don't want to live anywhere else because despite what you may think after listening to our 1916 series I really do love my little country just poised at the edge of Europe Hopefully that answers any questions you might have about the situation, but since several of you sent me questions asking about my academic future, I wanted to cover as many bases in that explainer as possible. Now, you may, justifiably, be wondering how I'm going to balance this podcast with the full-time PhD programme and still lecturing in Technological University of Dublin. Even my granny is worried that I'm working too hard. Well, the simple answer is that through extensive planning and preparation, I will be able to manage. In short, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is this podcast won't be vanishing while I'm in my studies. The bad news is we've had to make some hard choices in order to make this happen. The way I saw it, while waiting for the callback from Trinity, there was going to be a silver lining either way. If I didn't get into Trinity, my plan was to double down on the show over the summer and start working on that long-awaited program The Age of Bismarck. If I did get in though, I would make use of the series, which, thanks to the strange whims of Zach Twomley, I already have half completed. Let me explain what I mean, because you're probably really confused right now. For whatever reason, don't ask me why, once I got married in May 2017, I spent the summer after that wedding researching and writing scripts for Poland is Not Yet Lost. I'm not quite sure why I did this. I think I imagined it would be released soon, but then I decided to do the Korean War in 1956 from 2018 onwards instead, which meant that Poland Is Not Yet Lost was kind of left there on the back burner. Then I had the phenomenally stupid idea to release two new podcasts last May for our sixth birthday, one of them being Poland, the other one being a remastered 30 Years War show. You can probably see where this is going now. Basically the plan was, if I got into the PhD, to make use of this reservoir of researched scripts in the 30 Years War for the main feed, and Poland is not yet lost, for the Patreon $5 feed. If I didn't get the PhD, my consolation prize would have been to delve into the Age of Bismarck, which is something I've wanted to do for yonks. That we've got into the PhD means that from October, the 30 Years War will be in our main feed, and patrons who pay $5 a month will get Poland is not yet lost. Of course this also means, and this is the bad news, that sadly the Age of Bismarck will be put on the long finger once again. I hope you guys understand why I'm postponing it. I don't want to release it until I can absolutely do it justice, and to try and begin researching something from scratch, even though it's not really from scratch because obviously I know a thing or two about Bismarck, but you get what I mean. It's a brand new series I'd have to start writing from the beginning, and doing this, just as I'm starting the PhD, would be a bit crazy, even for me. As far as the schedule goes, we'll be moving to a bi-weekly show, where the first and third week of the month has an episode of The 30 Years War, and every other week has an episode of Poland Is Not Yet Lost. That means there's now actually going to be a reason to be a patron, because rather than thinking, I'm drowning in content already, why would I want any more content? Now you'll get double the content for the month if you support at the $5 level. This setup, I imagine, will take some of the strain off me, because it'll prolong the 30 Years War series, it'll mean I'll still have a presence, and it will mean that, well, hopefully we'll all have time to enjoy what we actually have, but it will also make the episodes more valuable. Also, remember that time when we used to do weekly episodes? Yeah, me neither. I would be lying if I said that I didn't miss having fewer than 10 episodes a week. But like I said, this news isn't going to fundamentally change your universe, even though this PhD is, of course, going to change mine, and it is going to change how this podcast is run as well. I want to do more online things that aren't directly podcast related, and I want to harness my back catalogue more effectively. And again, don't worry about me, because all of this can be done with some good preparation and by maintaining a more active social media presence. The point is that I won't be vanishing, and I will, if you are interested, be willing to provide you guys with maybe, I don't know, monthly updates on what I'm working on at the PhD, and what my workload looks like. If you're worried about me still, then let me assure you I don't plan on ever being as stressed out as I was this year, and about late February or early March. When I had to learn how to do exam papers, I had the delegation game to wrap my head around, I had loads of Versailles anniversary projects still to write, I had a lecturing job still to master, and I had personal stuff like having a life and worrying about my dad to consider as well. I am past that rough stage, and the Versailles anniversary project and delegation game are in the home stretch now, so don't worry about me. What you should do is celebrate. Seriously, give yourself a little pat on the back, do a little jump for joy, high-five some randomer or something because it is a pretty huge deal that your humble host is about to begin a PhD. It's like things are all coming full circle in a way, because as I said in the beginning, when I started this show I was a first-year student in history and politics at UCD, and now seven years on, I'm about to begin a history PhD. Those years in between and this whole journey have been made possible by this podcast. This podcast has been my constant companion and the greatest credit to me professionally for the last seven years. It got me my jobs as a researcher and a lecturer, it provided me with an extra edge when applying for the PhDs and it also did that thing it was meant to do, which is bring history to nerds like you throughout the world on a scale and with a level of detail that I never imagined I could manage and which I never believed you guys would all enjoy and respond so enthusiastically to, either. I've said it before, I know, but 300 people currently give their money to me every month because they feel so passionately about what I do here, and that is incredible. And it is something that was above my imagination even three years ago to imagine, let alone seven years ago. When I say that you make this happen, I don't mean it as a lazy trope designed to make you like me, I really do mean it, and if I could, I would love to have some kind of massive hugathon where I could just host everyone who listens to and enjoys this show, and I could tell you all firsthand how important you are to me. I can't put into words what this PhD means, because I'll be honest, it has been hard sometimes, and I've wondered many times over if I'd taken on too much short answer, yes you have and it's all your fault, or maybe if I should quit or something else. That I stuck at this often wasn't due to my own strength but to the strength of others and I really want you to know that because I don't want you to see me as some kind of god of history so unlike you or so impossible to talk to or identify with. I still have a raging imposter syndrome every time I walk through the doors of the Technological University of Dublin and call myself a lecturer. I still second guess myself every time I switch on that microphone and I wonder why anyone would ever care to listen to what I have to say. I still see myself as the guy who couldn't get enough points in his leaving cert to even study history at third level, only to take the scenic route and find his way into a PhD program. I hope it's clear by now that I don't take any of this for granted and that podcasts are only as good as the people that listen to them. You've all voted with your voices, with your ears and with your wallets in some cases, because you believe in when diplomacy fails and our commitment to stupidly detailed, engaging and genuinely fun History Listening. If you haven't done all of this, this podcast would not be such a success, and I wouldn't be this successful professionally either. Those 6 million downloads haven't come from nowhere, of course, but I hope that if I scared you away over the last few months, you'll come back and say hi. Or at least, you'll join me in October for a revitalised, revamped look at the Thirty Years' War. And if you have some dollars jingling around, you'll join us for Poland Is Not Yet Lost as well, which if you weren't aware, is a completely original series examining the fate of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century, from great power to greatly partitioned by its neighbouring powers. It's a fascinating story indeed, and one which, hey, what do you know, nobody else is telling. I have some other announcements to make about how you can support this show and support me as well during the PhD. I'll be adding a new PhD Pal tier on Patreon, and I've already bumped up to seven Bismarcks to denote the fact that we're seven years old, but I'll also be giving you a chance to be listed as a contributor in our upcoming 30 Years War book, which is due in December, and which I'll be unveiling more about in the next few months. There is, if you didn't realise it yet, so much to look forward to with When Diplomacy Fails. This news is like the vindication of all my years of work and all your years of support. So from the bottom of my heart, honestly guys, I'll say it one last time, thanks for listening and supporting me here, and I hope that come PhD, I will do you all proud. Before we get all emotional, don't forget, we still have a Q&A to get through, so let's get down to business with that now. If you have any questions about this PhD or the podcast, make sure and reach me through the usual channels, but until then, I hope you enjoy this Q&A. <laughs> So, we had several questions come in, and I think the easiest way to make this Q&A episode not get a bit all over the place is to separate these questions into three categories. The first category being general podcasting questions, the second category being questions associated with the Versailles Anniversary Project, and the third category being questions associated just with history. So, starting with podcast questions... Joe from Montreal starts us off by asking what's a typical day of work for you like with the show? Well, I can't say what every single day looks like, but generally, if you were to say, I suppose, as he says in this question, a typical day, then my typical day, or one I'd like to imagine as being typical, begins at half seven, where I get up very responsibly and don't actually dawdle in the morning. I then fire about four espressos down my neck, and I start writing a script I'll have a break around 11. I'll then get back into it. I'll get finished this script about 1 or 2 o'clock. Then I'll head to the gym or go for a walk as a kind of break at lunchtime. And then I'll come back home around 3 o'clock and record. Maybe if I'm feeling supremely saintly, I'll also edit an episode. Or maybe I'll just send it to my sister who have started to hire to edit these episodes. Either way, the goal is to be finished a script to finish recording, to finish exercising, going to the gym, what have you, and maybe even start to cook dinner so that by 5 o'clock you're pretty much finished the day. The key to happiness, I've discovered, is to essentially not let the podcast take over your life. And the best way to do that is to essentially stop working on it at a certain point of day. And this point of day I've chosen is 5 o'clock, though of course sometimes we go over time a little bit. So I hope that answers your question, Joe. Now, a few people asked this following question in several different ways. So hello to Jeff Zanon and Pythiastic, I think his name is. These two guys asked me this question in several different ways, along with some other people whose names I can't quite remember at the moment. But it essentially boils down to, how are you managing to do all this? Or, what kind of black magic are you using to make days last 48 hours? So, first and foremost, I'm not a superhero. Some of you seem to wonder how exactly I managed to do all this. The simple answer is that this is my job and it's not like I have to go anywhere else and do anything else. Now having just said that, obviously I had to do lecturing for several weeks and I've only recently finished that. But it's all about planning and it's all about preparation and it's all about having a lot of espressos at very silly times, as I've learned. So what did the average week look for me like when I was at my busiest state? Well, typically, because I have to do lecturing on Tuesday and Friday, I would do those lectures on those days. And on Monday, I'd prepare for the lecturing on Tuesday. On Wednesday would be my free day, essentially, where I would literally work on the podcast. Thursday, actually Thursday, I would normally have a tutorial to do. So I'd have to go in at about three o'clock for that. But in the morning, I'd get up early enough so that I could work on some kind of script. And then on Friday, after I come back from the lecturing... I would start working on the delegation game script and then hopefully get it finished by the end of the day. Saturday, I'd record and edit the delegation game script and maybe if I'm feeling super sprightly and saintly, I would do another script. But generally, in the last few weeks, I've only been able to bang out about two, maybe three scripts a week. But thankfully now, this seems to be changing because we're finished with the lecturing. But yeah, it's all about organisation and planning ahead and making sure that you make effective use of your time. For example, I do a lot of traveling. So during that commuting, I do about an hour there and an hour back. And during that time, I do a lot of reading or listening to audiobooks, etc, etc. I started to try and take notes, but I just find my writing goes all over the place. And I'll talk a little bit about notes in a second. So hopefully, guys, that answers your questions. So Deborah on Facebook asks the question, How is teaching? Well, this is a very handy way to segue into my job. I've mentioned the Technological University of Dublin a lot, I've mentioned the fact that I am lecturing now, and you might be wondering what that entails and what it looks like. Well, essentially I am lecturing in politics. I'm lecturing in Irish politics, so I'm explaining how the Irish state works politically to some first-year students who are doing a business degree, and I'm also explaining how the European Union works, to people who are doing an accounting and finance degree so hopefully that clears things up a bit. Now obviously with the likes of the European Union the curriculum has changed and been altered somewhat thanks to Brexit. Brexit has made things very messy but I found it's also made students a lot more interested in what's going on so I would present the lecture relying very heavily on PowerPoint presentations because I love visual aids and then at the end, I'd try and open up the floor for questions. But by and large, no one wants to answer questions. They just want to leave my presence as quickly as possible. So once that happens, once my lecture is done, then my work is essentially done. But of course, I have to prepare for these lectures. And that's generally what Mondays are for. On Monday, I would prepare for the lecturing I'm going to be doing on Tuesday and on Friday so that I'm ready for the week. And that's essentially it. Although, in a certain point of the year, when you have to make out the exam papers, something I didn't even realise I would have to do at the time, that was very stressful because I'd never done that before. But it was very interesting being on the other side of exams because I always hated doing exams and now I was the person creating those exam papers. So yeah, bit of a learning curve, but very interesting. And thank God it's all over. Hopefully that answers your question, Deborah on Facebook. And now, Deborah on Facebook again. Oh, you're back. How do you get through your sources so quickly? Well, Deborah, the short answer is that I gather sources together in a big folder, and then I separate them into relevant sections. The way I do this is I, well, I keep them all in the big folder, but the names that I give these sources are designed to help me out. So if you were to look at my reading materials in the Versailles Anniversary Project, for instance, you would see that anything to do with America has USA before the name of the article, and then anything to do with Woodrow Wilson has WW for Wilson before the name of the article. And the same with Britain, it would have UK. And the same with France, it would have F or Germany, just G E or. So that kind of thing. So that separates them. So that means it's easier to get through them. So if I'm trying to find a specific article, I'm not looking all over for them. Of course, to do that, it took about a day or two to actually gather all those sources together in the first place. And obviously, when I'm starting out a project like the Versailles Anniversary project, Preparation is key, which I think is a theme you'll probably come away with after listening to this. But I don't mind all that stuff. I do enjoy tracking down all these sources and I do enjoy putting them all together. And I'm one of those big weirdos that really gets a kick out of arranging a really nice looking bibliography. So when I eventually have the chance to put that bibliography out for the Versailles Anniversary Project, you'll know that it's something that I really have enjoyed doing. But yes, I do put them into relevant sections so that it's easier for me to come back to. And if I know that a script is going to be made in the near future, and if I know I'm going to need that particular source, I will open up that script document, just a Microsoft Word folder, and I'll literally write in that Microsoft Word document, or I'll even copy and paste a quote out of that article or book or what have you, just so to remind myself to go back to it at some point in the future. I'll leave a mental note of some kind for myself, but you should also know that I read what I need. It's it's rarely the case that I would read through all of those sources that I have. I would skim through most of them looking for major points. And it's probably cheating in a way. But if you thought that I read the hundreds of articles that I have on tap. Then you must be thinking of somebody else. There's just no way I could have time for all of that. Now I do a lot of reading obviously. And I do a lot of reading of eBooks as well. I've used Questia which is a fantastic resource. And which you pay I think it's. for three months and you get a sick amount of books online. That's really helped me out. Pretty much all the books that I've been citing from have been on Questia. And if anyone from Questia is listening to this right now, please reply to my emails because I'm trying to set up some kind of of deal where my listeners might get a certain amount off if they sign up for your deal and we benefit each other, etc, etc. I tried to set it up but I got no reply, so do get back to me if you're interested. Until then, though, if any listeners are wanting to research different topics, do go and check Questia out. You could do far worse. It's really easy to get started, and it's seriously overwhelming, but also really exciting to have all those sources at your fingertips. Several books which I've seen that cost a stupid amount of money online to buy as their physical copy are all available on Questia, I've found, for, obviously, a far better price. So do check out Questia if you're uncertain. But again, the way I get through sources is I get all of the relevant ones in front of me for the episode I'm going to write. And I know that they're relevant because I've sorted that out beforehand. And once they are in front of me, as I'm making the episode, I would normally have one or two sources that I would use as the kind of guide. And then I would bolster those sources as my guide with other sources that maybe go into different details. And of course, I would make sure that the guide, the narrative that I'm following in someone's work does make sense and isn't seriously contentious or contradicted by somebody else's work. So that's how I get through sources so quickly Deborah. Essentially I cheat by skimming through them and using the ones that are most important and I also prepare enough beforehand so that I'm not lost and running around like a headless chicken trying to find that really useful quote that I had several months ago but I just can't for the life of me remember where it was. Hopefully that answers your question now Michael Soricelli, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Michael Soricelli on Patreon asked, Do you see Sean anymore? By Sean he means the guy who I used to do talk episodes with. Do I see him anymore? The short answer is no, but that's not necessarily his fault. He is living in a different country at the moment. I haven't talked to him in a very long time, but last time I did talk to him he was getting married at the end of this year, so maybe I'll talk to him then. I'll never say never, but... Sean and I don't really talk as much as we used to, we're both very busy people. And we did fall out and then make back up, but I don't know. I don't know exactly what the future holds for either of us, but as far as I know, after having made like this big pledge to do a stupid amount of 30 Years War talk episodes with him, understandably he has a life and these things don't always work out. But maybe in the future we will, or maybe in the future I'll just get all these random people together to do talk episodes with instead who knows so Gary on Facebook asks me a completely different question altogether what's your favorite junk food well Gary I'll tell you first and foremost Cadbury giant chocolate buttons hands down are the greatest thing that were ever created I'm telling you right now Americans I feel very sorry for you you just cannot do chocolate properly whatever you have there that chocolate you have that just is not chocolate Hershey's whatever, Reese's, all those kinds of things, Cadbury's is the only way. And I will say as well, Cadbury's used to be nicer, but then it was taken over by an American company called Kraft, and ever since then it hasn't tasted the same. But it still tastes wonderfully better than anything else that is made in America. I very rarely bash Americans in any kind of way, but I will say that your chocolate is absolute muck. So, Kean from Limerick, If you had one piece of advice for someone starting out in history podcasting, what would it be? Well, Keen, I'm going to say something I've said an awful lot already. Preparation. Don't start your podcast until you have at least 10 episodes fully prepared. Consider all the angles you'll have to take on. Consider the researching, the writing, the recording, the editing, the promotion. Plan how you'll do all of these bits and make sure you do all of them well because if you do something badly in that list of tasks you have your podcast will suffer. By and large, though, your quality, your attention to detail and making sure that your research is watertight, those are the most important things. I'm a firm believer of the cream rising to the top. It's much better to actually make a really good podcast and not promote it than to promote something that's absolute garbage. So prioritize making a really, really good show and make sure that you have several episodes in the bank before you start. By having those episodes in the bank, you'll hopefully by then have honed in on your style, on the angle you're going to take, etc, etc. The worst thing that could happen is doing something like I did, where you thought you had everything down, so you just literally released one episode piecemeal after every few weeks, and then abruptly changed your entire structure and schedule and everything else. But thankfully, since that happened in the first year of this show, uh, we've pretty much gone back to a more suitable schedule. Now I say that, and I'm about to release about the sixth episode this week, but there you go. So make sure you prepare, make sure you know what you're doing, and don't jump into this blindly with one episode at a time. So, Jason on Facebook asks, What is your recording studio setup?" Well, Jason, are you ready for this? My studio, if you want to even use that term, consists of, first and foremost, a Blue Yeti. Obviously, that is the centerpiece of this studio we have. I also, if you wanted to know... I sit in the back room of the apartment and I have the curtains pulled to deaden out the noise. And I have, currently, my microphone on one of those laptop knee cushions. This way the microphone doesn't pick up the noise from the laptop, which I find that it does pick up the noise if they're on the same desk. I have some random old hat that somebody left behind in our place as the pop filter because I don't want to spend any more money. My laptop will be 10 years old next spring and I use Audacity which is free as an audio software. Lately, I've started to hire my sister to edit the episodes, but that's about it. So, in other words, don't let anyone tell you that you need a load of money to start recording. I've yet to receive any complaints about the sound quality. The only complaint I used to receive in the past was that my sound effects were too loud, but I've kind of learned from those mistakes. In short, though, I have heard people say, oh, it's fine, I'll just record on my iPhone. There are certain things you must stick to. So make sure that you can actually edit the stuff that you put out and make sure you edit it properly. But don't spend a whole load of time wasted on what kind of studio or sound mixer or anything like that you need to set up. This is a USB microphone you're listening to right now. It costs about £100 on Amazon and it's not that hard to get the hang of. You literally plug it in and play it. Audacity is free to download. All you need is an MP3 converter which is also free to get as well. None of that stuff should be tripping you up from starting. If you're worried about starting, worry about the things that matter, such as actually researching properly, etc, etc. Don't worry about the audio, because the audio should not be the hardest part. So, Earl via email wants to know, will you cover any examples of when diplomacy succeeds in the future? That's a good question, Earl, and it's something I've been asked in the past before. The short answer is yes, The long answer is, I don't know when, because at the moment, of course, my schedule is chock-a-block and pretty much planned out for me. But I will absolutely be turning my attention to other topics, other than just the depressing, sad news of people making terribly grave mistakes. I would love to cover other topics in the future, and I certainly am not ruling that out. So, put that down to a kind of very grey area, or put that down to a vague yes... Not a maybe. I mean, it's a maybe It's in so far as I don't have the time at the moment, but once I do have the time, I will be doing it. So Josh via email asks, what's a pet peeve that you have with history podcasting? Well, Josh, I think one of my pet peeves is probably similar to what most people have. It's not one of those things where it's like, oh, you didn't research the blah, blah, blah properly. To me, if the audio is crap, then I'm not going to listen. Mostly because, as I've just told you about my audio setup, it just isn't that hard to make your podcast sound good. It really isn't. It's not that hard to do it. So when I hear people who clearly haven't gone to the effort, I wonder why I should spend the time listening when you haven't gone to the effort of making it sound as good as it can. And again, it's not that hard to make it sound good. Other things that really, really bother me, I can't stand when people breathe really loudly into the microphone. I can't stand where people leave in loads of really obvious mistakes and don't bother editing them out. I've probably done that before, but I never leave in mistakes deliberately. Sometimes I feel like people leave them in because they're like, ah, oh, that's fine, people don't mind. If you leave one or two in every now and then and it's a genuine mistake, that's fine. I've done this thing before where someone has told me about it and I've gone and rectified it and then re-uploaded the entire episode. That is what you have to do when you're doing history podcasting. It shouldn't be good enough for you to say, oh, I know there's a big mistake there or oh, I know I said all that stuff incorrectly and then, repeated myself in the episode or I know there was like a minute of dead silence that just doesn't need to be there but it's grand it's only history podcasting I feel like if I don't take people to task with these things then the standard of history podcasting will decline so that's why I'm such a such a nazi's not the right term but that's why I'm so uh, persnickety about it because I feel like I'm going to this effort so you should be too hey look at that I got all pet peeved about it in the end so Henry via email asks me, how do you construct your scripts for each episode? Well, Henry, this might surprise you. I've been actually not asked this as much as I would have expected. I think people just assume that I'll follow a normal format. Let me just say, this is a very unorthodox way of doing things, but it works for me. I don't make loads of notes. By that I mean, when I'm starting out a script, I would probably write two or three sentences in the script, which would be the go- the gist of... Make sure you cover this point in your script. But I pretty much don't make any notes. When I'm starting a script, I know what the topic is going to be because I know I'm following a certain narrative, and I just start writing. Now, my sources are in front of me, but I pretty much just see how I get on. And yes, when I say I start writing, that means I start typing. I'm not writing this on a paper or anything like that. It is in Microsoft Word. I've never taken notes before making a script, Maybe if I did take notes, my episodes will be better, but I've never felt the need to change my formula. And I can generally get a script finished in a day, and this script can vary in size from 10 to 18 pages. Generally though, what you hear me reading in the episode is the script that I wrote in a single day. Getting a script written in a day is kind of like a, an average day of work for me. That might be crazy for some people, but they probably spend a lot more time in the note writing stage. Because I seem to skip the note-writing stage without any real penalties, I don't really find that it takes me as long. I also find that I enjoy the process a lot more, it feels a lot more fluid. It is rare I would go back and change all that much of a script unless I really didn't like what I wrote the day before, but by and large this is the way I do things. I'm not saying that this is because I'm so wonderful I'm able to do all this without notes, it's just the process that has always worked for me the odd time when I tried to write notes I end up getting all bogged down in the note writing stage and then I find that I have wasted a load of time and it's lunchtime, and I haven't actually put any pen to paper or pen to script or typing to script or whatever you want to call it and I haven't got much work done. The best thing I find is actually starting to type because that way even if you only have some loose ideas they're at least down on this Microsoft Word document and you have something there even if you have to go back to it another time. But yes... By and large, for example, today is Thursday when I'm recording this. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I got a script written, I got an episode recorded and edited. So that's essentially what my days have been like. That's the kind of standard I like to uphold. And I'm able to do that because of the way I approach scripts. Probably doesn't work for everyone, but it's what works for me. Ian on Facebook. You came to the United States in November 2018. What was one thing you liked and one thing you didn't like about our country? Oh dear, I already insulted your chocolate, so this is probably a bad thing already here. Well first of all, let's start with what I did like. I really really loved the breakfast in the hotel. I thought that that was wonderful. I really really loved it. I've never eaten so much carbs and I've never eaten so much waffles in the one place. We don't really have waffles in Ireland. We don't really obsess over pancakes as much. Weirdly enough, if you're ever here on Pancake Tuesday, you're probably wondering what the deal is in Pancake Tuesday. We essentially have pancakes once a year and everyone gets really excited. It's like nobody told Ireland or other people that do Pancake Day that pancakes aren't just a once a year thing and you're able to have them whenever you want. But we just have them once a year and it's kind of weird almost to have pancakes for breakfast over here. But I really enjoyed having them when I was in the United States, so there you go. Something which I didn't like about America, well, it's probably not that surprising, but the whole tipping system is really jarring when you're not from America. And it's also really expensive. I was under the impression that people tipped because food was cheaper or it was cheaper going out for dinner when you had to give more money to the server or what have you. But no, it's just really odd. I also had a really odd experience where we went to this really nice restaurant that we really liked and our server came over and asked us if we could essentially hurry up ordering because she was off her shift soon and she wouldn't get our tips. And we kind of just looked at her. So <laughs> I don't really like that whole system. I I think it's wrong and I think that it's... A really, really strange system as well. Also, it only exists because it was brought in at an emergency time. So it was brought in, I think it was brought in at the time of the First World War or something. It was brought in at a time when the country was essentially trying to band together. And then that system kind of just stuck. And now you have a situation where the companies are making all the money and the customers are having to pay for the staff and for their food. And to me, that just doesn't seem right. I'm probably going to get loads of people from America now being like, you hate our chocolate and you hate how we do restaurants. Sorry, that's just, it's just how I feel. Compared to Ireland, where it's not even, you're not even really obliged to tip. It's just such a breeze. And sometimes there's even a service charge of like 10%. Now, that's very rare, and I don't really agree with that. But you know what I mean. In America, I feel like we were stressing out about tipping. Whereas... Over here, you just don't do that because everyone's on minimum wage at least and it's not up to you to pay their wages. Anyway, let's move on from that before I offend anyone else. So we're on to Versailles Anniversary Project questions. Let's start with Jeff Zanon, who's asked us a question before. Jeff asks, did you expect this series to be so massive? Well, Jeff, I expected it to be massive, but I had no idea it would be this massive. That's the most straightforward answer I can give you. I mean, I could go into more detail. I didn't really realize that I would get so sidetracked. I thought that I'd have a really clear idea of what I was covering and what I would not cover. And then, of course, I got very into certain topics and I got very occupied with certain ideas. I think in the introduction episode that I was listening to the other day, I said something along the lines of, I'm not going to look at Greece, I'm not going to look at Ireland, I'm not going to look at all these different things. And sure enough, I've looked at Ireland and I've looked at Greece and I've looked at so many other things. In episodes that I'm writing now... I've literally had to say, sorry listeners, but I'm only going to focus on Versailles because focusing on anything else is just ridiculous. Like, I ended up starting to spend time like talking about the Austrian treaties or the Hungarian treaties and because I just found it so interesting. And realizing, of course, knowing full well that this was inflating the size of the project, I just couldn't bring myself to not talk about it. But it was a very hard thing to do. I just had to stop talking about things that weren't directly related with the Versailles treaty. Once I've done that, the project seems much more manageable, but yes, it's far, far bigger than I expected it to be. Would you believe me if I told you that I expected it to take 50 episodes to tell the whole story? We're now in episode 67, and yeah, we're only in like the middle of May, so that should tell you all you need to know. I currently estimate, because guess he hasn't finished writing the Versailles Anniversary project yet, I currently estimate that it will take 85 episodes to finish and maybe it will take fewer than that. Part of me wishes it would go to 100, just because it would satisfy my OCD senses, but there you go, I can't really justify 100 episodes. So yes, I thought it would be big, but not this big. Jeff then asks, What was the most surprising fact about my research that I've learned? Well, Jeff, the most surprising thing I've learned by far is just how important Italy was to this whole thing. I think... Mostly because we're told, oh, the big three, big four kind of idea. But looking at the minutes that I've looked at, especially once the Italians left in late April, literally all the people in the Council of Four talked about when Italy left was what Italy was doing, where Italy was going to land next, how bad Italy was and everything else. Which is kind of crazy because they had a treaty to figure out with Germany, but all they seemed willing to talk about was the Italians. So it was really interesting to see that, because I felt like I was discovering that for the first time. It's not really talked about how important a role Italy plays, and sure enough, they don't play that important a role, but this idea that the Allies just couldn't stop thinking about them, and the fact that the Italians really are throwing a spanner in the works between the other big three, because Woodrow Wilson didn't recognise the Treaty of London, and the British and French did, it really had the potential to sour relations between pretty much everyone, and they were pretty much trapped in that situation because of previous agreements they made. Also, seeing Woodrow Wilson and Vittorio Orlando go at each other in the minutes is quite hilarious. So, what's the weirdest error you've made with this project? Andy on Patreon asks this question. By error, I'm assuming you're essentially opening the floor up to everything, but I'm going to focus on one thing that I did at the start of the project before someone corrected me, For whatever reason, I started to call Armistice, Armistice. I've no idea why I was doing that, and I know it's very unusual, and it's probably very anticlimactic as an error, maybe we're expecting something more exciting, but that just really stuck out to me as something to really get wrong. I've no idea why I thought Armistice was the right way to say it. I never really thought all that much about how to say Armistice, but really, I'm sorry I said it so wrong for so long. There's probably other things as well, I said John Maynard Keynes several times, On one occasion when I was correcting myself and saying, oh I've been told the right way to say it, I said it wrong later on in the episode anyway, so I said Keens rather than Canes several times, I've actually had to start writing it as Canes in my scripts because whatever it is about my brain it just wants to say Keens. Other things as well, I'm sure I've pronounced stuff wrong, but that's what sticks out to me. Now, Niall on Patreon asks an interesting question. What's your favourite subtitle that you've given to an episode of this series? If you weren't aware, whenever I'm releasing episodes, I have a subtitle in their description, and that will come up, I think, in the normal feed, if you look at it listed in iTunes or Podcast Addict or anything like that. They don't really show up, I don't think, in Spotify, which I'm told do things differently, but there you go. If I was to list my favourite subtitles for the Versailles Anniversary Project... I think David Becomes Goliath is one I'm very proud of. Also, I really love Orlando Gloom when we were talking about Vittorio Orlando. No One Puts Bela in the Corner was another one of my faves. And Germany Falling, Germany Falling as well. I was very proud about that. The way I think up these subtitles, believe it or not, is essentially by trying to find a pun. Bet you didn't realise that. So, Deborah on Facebook asks, Where do you even begin with big projects like the Versailles Anniversary Project? Well that's a good question Deborah, I mean obviously you begin at the start, or as much at the start as you can. Before I began this whole thing I freaked out for ages trying to figure out where to begin. And it is pretty intimidating, but I essentially started with with the three characters. I started with Woodrow Wilson, with George Clemenceau and David Lloyd George, and tried to work back from there and I had to start at the 11th of November because I had to essentially root my analysis somewhere and then I kind of moved forward chronologically from there and examined what happened. It was very difficult, in fact it was probably the most difficult thing to decide where to begin and where not to begin. I really wanted it for a while to start further back in 1918 and examine the spring offensives a little bit but then I realized that was definitely taking on too much especially since the spring offensives had been talked about before, whereas the period that comes after the armistice isn't really talked about. So, that's hopefully answers your question there. Roto Lando on Patreon asks, Whose diary do you wish you had for the Versailles Anniversary Project? Well, I definitely wish I had Woodrow Wilson's diary, because I think it would be a great illustration of how the Paris Peace Conference started out, especially how it becomes for him later on. I'd love to hear his own personal thoughts on things as they happened. It would start like an upbeat vision of what's to come as he goes on the boat towards Paris in late 1918, only for the scales to gradually fall from his eyes over the spring, to get reunited at the French and the Italians and then the British, and then eventually to conclude once he has his stroke in October the following year, that everything essentially is doomed. I think that would be like reading a terrible tragedy, but it would be really interesting and really revealing to see what he has to say about all the people that he met with, because he was essentially unable to have a moment of peace because of all the people that were petitioning him. So moving on from the Versailles Anniversary Project questions and just towards history questions in general. Jessica, via email, wants to know what I'm reading right now, aside from all the Versailles Anniversary Project and 1956 stuff, well, if you're part of the When Diplomacy Fails group, you'll know that I was recently on holiday. And I recently said that being on holiday doesn't mean that you read less history. It just means you start drinking earlier. At that time, the picture of the book I had was Hitler's Empire. Now, I'm really, really bad because the book isn't in front of me and I can't remember the name of the author who wrote it. Mark something. It's it's a penguin book. You'll be able to see it if you look at that post in the group. And it's a really fascinating book, essentially, about how the Nazis ruled over those places of Europe that they conquered. I, like so many other people, are endlessly fascinated by the Third Reich. Fascinated and appalled, of course, but that goes without saying. And I just really wanted to know how they managed to rule in these areas that they were in, often in spite of themselves. And, yeah, it's a really interesting book, so easy to read. I would definitely recommend checking that out. Now, Damien, via email... Asks me, any books that you've stopped reading out of frustration, name, and shame? Well, this answer might surprise you a little bit. I thought at first there's no books that I've stopped reading out of frustration, but then I realised that I started reading The Guns of August a year or two ago because I just had never properly read it, and I just had to stop reading because it just, knowing what I know now about how completely untrue a lot of the stuff she says is it just really grinded my gears that this book is often recommended and put forward as like the book on the outbreak of the first world war but it's incredibly simplistic and I, incredibly like reductionist in how it examines the motives of the different characters however i will say that that scene of opening at edward the funeral i think it is where pretty much everyone who's anyone in europe in all the royal families are all gathered around for this funeral and it really kind of illustrates how important the British Empire is. That is an incredible scene and it really captures the imagination. And Barbara Tuchman is brilliant at capturing those scenes. I read her other book The Proud Tower which I think it essentially covers the late 1800s. I think it's the last 10 years of the 19th century it examines and that's a really good book. She's really good and a really capable historian but I just thought that her conclusions Especially knowing what we know now and knowing what I know, having surrounded myself in that era. They leave a bit of something to be desired. So that's the surprising answer to that question. Rodolando, he's back, He, he asks me the question, What famous hair or beard style do you wish you could pull off today? Well, I didn't even have to think all that much about this. Victorian era sideburns. If I could carry those out, I would just be so pleased with myself. To be honest, I've tried before, but then Anna forced me to shave them off. So, yeah, I I know that the era just it just isn't right for them, but they're the kind of things that, like, they make me swoon. They're just so wonderful. They would make living in that era actually worthwhile if they were properly in fashion. Tara on Patreon asks, What is your favourite female diplomatic leader? Or even, do you have one? Well, the straightforward answer to that is Catherine the Great, of course. She was a very interesting character and we'll be learning about her and Poland is not yet lost. As we'll also be learning about Maria Theresa of Habsburg, but also someone else who's often overlooked is Marie de Medici, so the essential queen, the ruler of France for much of the late 1500s, whose son successively died out and essentially the Valois dynasty died out with them. So she didn't have a very good end, she was married to King Henry II of France I believe, And I haven't really looked into that period all that much. But what I have read about Marie de Medici really is fascinating. Especially looking at her origin story and where she came from and how she didn't have children for like 10 years and everyone thought she was cursed. And then suddenly she had loads of children and then they all died and the Valois dynasty died out and it was really horrible. And the French Civil War and the wars of religion happened and everything else. She's a formidable character. She's like an iron lady and she's quite tough to love but... She was an excellent schemer, and actually there's this series on Netflix called Rain, which is absolutely atrocious, don't watch it for any historical reasons, but when me and Anna were watching it before, and I know I said don't watch it, but what can I say, we we watched some really awful things, I really enjoyed the depiction of Marie de Medici in that because she was a schemer, and hey, it's a guilty pleasure, I can't always watch really serious stuff, so there you go. So, road Orlando is back again. You get to ask one question to one historical figure and they have to answer. Honestly, who will you ask and what question will you ask them? My answer to this is straight up. Truman, is it true what I said about you during the Korean War? Did you actually behave that way? Did you actually know the North Koreans were going to attack? And if so, please leave some kind of evidence so people don't think I'm a conspiracy nut and slag me off or... Call me this or that on iTunes. Yes, that would be nice. If I could find out if Truman genuinely did that, I feel like the circumstantial evidence is there. Certainly the evidence to support the alternative view that they didn't know the war was coming doesn't really add up to me. But there you go. If I could, I would love to ask Truman if that was actually the case. I think that would clear up a lot of mysteries, especially if I could get him to tell other people about it so that they would know I'm not crazy. So Randy on Patreon wants to know, What do you think of historians that allow their ideology or opinions to affect their work? Well, I think they're irresponsible and dishonest, and I don't think they're doing their jobs properly. I think if you allow those things to get in the way, if you allow them to cloud your work and to cloud your judgment, then you're not doing your job. You're not being a proper historian. Obviously, everyone comes to the table with different biases, but you have to do your best to overcome these and not to ignore certain points and emphasize others to make a proper school of thought work or to make your political opinions seem valid. We're all here, we're all people that are living in this world and history obviously is something that people will always interpret the way that they want to interpret but the worst thing you can do is be dishonest when you're trying to research history in order to push a specific narrative. That's what dictatorships do. Don't be a dictatorship, don't be a Mao, don't be a Stalin, be honest with the materials you have at your disposal And we'll all get on fine. So that's a bit of a weird note to end on, I realise. But that is the last question I wanted to cover. So that essentially means our Q&A is over. So, thanks so much for listening to it. I hope you did enjoy it. I hope you feel like you know me a little bit better. And I hope you're as excited as I am about this huge news. I'm probably going to release some kind of blog post in the future to talk about this a little bit more. But yeah, really, really exciting stuff. And thanks so much for making it all possible. Who would have thought? Zach Twomley doing a PhD in Trinity College, Dublin. So I've been Zach. You've been great. Thanks for listening. And I'll be seeing you all next time.